Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Expansion of Europe. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, European Society. In 1490, what kind of political system reigned supreme in Europe? Feudal kingdoms. Kings, princes, and emperors owned vast lands and conscripted men for military service and lived off of peasant labor. Only in England and the Netherlands did they hold something resembling representative powers, but this was still a far cry from democracy. Monarchs sought to solidify control over their domains and expand their power beyond their borders, which led to wars over claims for territory and hereditary pedigrees. The early seeds of nationalism were planted in many of these conflicts and in search for more power and authority, yet the idea of a Frenchman or German did not yet exist. Europe was also governed by patriarchy, meaning men governed women, children, businesses, and the state. As such, these were patrilineal societies, meaning kinship and lineage was drawn from the male side. Within these kinship networks, systems of property exchanged from one generation to the next was done by a system called primogeniture. Fathers would bestow all their land to the eldest son, while other sons got nothing. So what do you expect these younger sons to do? That's right, go and get money any way possible, especially going to war. Now this is important, because in America, there is no aristocracy or at least there wasn't any, and the concept of primogeniture is actually abolished in the United States Constitution. Going back to Europe, certain countries like England had a system called common law, and in common law, women were subjected to what is known as coverture, meaning that they ceased to be legal entities after marriage and were solely represented in legal and social systems by their husbands or fathers. In this age, marital rape is not a thing, and women had no recourse. In addition, if a woman is raped and gets pregnant, by English law, it means she enjoyed it, and thus was not a rape. And we unfortunately see some modern-day evangelicals stick to this type of idiocy. Lastly, sexuality was repressed by the Catholic Church. And while there was some fluidity about bisexuality among men, these were quickly restricted during times of great conflict, as kingdoms instituted harsher punishments to distract the people from other issues. So, this is a continuity in human history. When things get bad, blame it on people's sexuality. Please advance to the next slide entitled, European Society Part 2. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church was the great unifying institution of Western Europe. But this unifying tradition changed in 1517 when Martin Luther, a German monk and professor, posted his 95 theses on the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther criticized some of the practices of the Catholic Church, including the sale of indulgences. In this act began the Protestant Reformation. As a result of the Reformation, several European wars of religion from 1518 to 1648 resulted, in which millions of people died, 
as Catholic kingdoms attempted to violently roll back the Reformation. Warfare was much different than today. In 1490, peasant and mercenary armies were the custom instead of professional standing armies that later dominated the continent. It would be several centuries before professionally trained and paid armies became the norm. So in the interim, this meant that armies lacked discipline and often raided and abused local citizenry of foreign and domestic lands alike. While there was a theoretical code of rules that governed how nobles and princes should conduct warfare, these were easily discarded in close contests. Of course, these rules did not apply to heathens, mercenaries, or peasants, and these poor souls would be slaughtered or sold into slavery at a commander's whim. While nobles and aristocrats could also fall victim to retributions, their worth usually led commoners to hold back, lest they give up a valuable payday. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Motivations. Why else did Europeans explore the world? One explanation is the three G's. God, glory, and gold. God was to spread Christianity. As Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz once said, quote, to serve God and his majesty, to give light to those who are in darkness, and to grow rich as all men desire to do so, end quote. This ties into the second point of glory, for the explorers and their homelands alike, in gold, which is self-explanatory, getting rich quick. European imaginations and tastes were stimulated for foreign goods during the Crusades into the Holy Land. This exposed Europeans to new goods, architecture, and technology than previously thought possible. In the process, on the Iberian Peninsula, Spanish and Portuguese kingdoms embarked on the Reconquista from the 700s to 1492. The Reconquista was the fight against the Muslim Moors who had conquered the peninsula during the 600s. The Reconquista militarized Spanish society and created a class of zealous warriors called conquistadors. It is this same class that will later turn their barbaric rage against the Aztecs and other native groups in the New World, destroying an entire way of life. After the fall of the Crusader kingdoms, Europeans wanted to regain access to the Oriental goods. Those who could afford the goods were willing to pay a lot for them, but the problem was the Ottoman conquest of the fall of Constantinople in 1453. As a result of the conquest, Greek and Byzantine scientists and scribes fled the region and headed for the Italian peninsula, which spurred the Renaissance, a cultural and intellectual flourishing that rediscovered lost knowledge, in part preserved by Christian and Muslim monks, and also forged the path to new intellectual discoveries. Due to the Ottoman conquests, this meant that Muslims controlled the land and sea trading routes in the eastern Mediterranean, so anyone who wanted to do business with the Orient meant that they had to pay Muslim middlemen to conduct transactions as well as to protect their goods, and this meant that everything was more expensive. So what was the solution? To find a water route to the Orient, and luckily, the Renaissance was providing the technology and knowledge necessary for such an endeavor. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Portuguese Exploration. By all accounts, Prince Henry of Portugal, also called Henry the Navigator, 
who lived from 1394 to 1460, helped lead Portugal to become one of the foremost seafaring nations of his age. He funded technological improvements that enabled Portuguese ships to travel around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. He oversaw advances in astronomy and cartography, which enabled Portuguese mariners to use the stars for navigation and to record their progress on maps, and he funded explorers searching for sea routes to Asia. During his tenure, Henry helped open trade with West Africa by 1435, leading to the Portuguese access to indico, gold, and African slaves. The Portuguese during this time also discovered the Atlantic Islands, which is the Canaries, Cape Verde, and Saint Tomé. This is important because they will be the testing ground for a new agricultural and labor system that would become predominant in certain areas of the New World. To get to Asia, the Portuguese wanted to sail around what we call the Cape of Good Hope, and in 1488, Bartolomeu Dias's fleet was the first to round the Cape, and ten years later, in 1498, Vasco da Gama's fleet rounded the Cape and reached India. On the Atlantic Islands, the Portuguese introduced sugar plantations. These plantations reaped huge profits, and would become the envy of other European powers seeking to enrich themselves and fuel their expansion. Over several years, the Portuguese established the structural framework for what would become the Atlantic slave trade. This involved establishing diplomatic and trade relations with several West African kingdoms. Because of the presence of disease that killed Europeans in great numbers, Portuguese presence was limited to several slave forts constructed on the West African coast. These were built with defenses toward the sea rather than towards the land, suggesting that they were built with the tacit approval of African kings. Portuguese soldiers fought and advised for various African kingdoms, though disease prevented larger military participation in these conflicts. Over time, the Portuguese would end up transporting 100,000 Africans to the Iberian Peninsula from 1450 to 1500 alone, a grim sign of things to come. Lastly, the Portuguese competed with the Ottomans for access to Asian trade and would end up taking over various Ottoman trade posts on the Indian Ocean, a sign of their expansion, but also of the Ottoman Empire's own vast network of imperialistic reach. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Christopher Columbus. In the 1480s, a Genoese sailor named Christopher Columbus got in on the action. His plan was to sail west, across the Atlantic, to East Asia. But he was not the first guy to propose this route. Columbus first asked the Portuguese crown to fund his expedition, but they turned him down. Why? Well, there's a myth that everyone in this era thought the world was flat. In fact, most educated Europeans knew it was round, because ancient Greek mathematicians had determined that the Earth was round 2,000 years earlier. By their calculations, the Earth was 24,000 miles in circumference, which meant that Asia was only 10 to 12,000 miles west of Europe. Columbus rejected this, because he thought that the Earth was only 18,000 miles in circumference, and thus Asia was only 3,500 miles away from Europe. Most believed Columbus's estimations were too small, 
thus sailing west to Asia was considered far too risky. After the Portuguese rejected him, Columbus then asked the French and English for funding and was rejected again. Then he went to the Spanish, and Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand agreed, reasoning that even if Columbus failed to reach Asia, he might discover some valuable new islands like the Canaries that could become home to sugar plantations. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue with 90 men on three ships. 33 days later, he reached the modern-day Bahamas and then sailed to the Caribbean islands. He believed he'd landed on the islands east of Asia and named the region the East Indies, and the natives he encountered he described as Los Indos, or Indians. Columbus returned to Spain in 1493, and news of his voyage spread rapidly thanks to the printing press. Columbus launched a total of four voyages. The first, as I said, found not only the Bahamas, but Cuba and Hispaniola, which is modern-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic. His second journey found more islands, including Puerto Rico in the Windward and Leeward Islands of Guadalupe and Martinique. His third voyage found the coast of South America, and his fourth voyage found the coast of Central America. During his tenure, Columbus held many positions, including the Viceroy and Governor of the Indies. He became notorious for his enslavement and genocide of the Indians, as well as for his corruption. This corruption ultimately caused him to be arrested, though he was ultimately released. In all, Columbus embarked on four voyages crossing much of the Caribbean Sea, but his memory is a tangled one. Yes, he was a butcher. Yes, he was wrong about his calculations, and he went to his grave claiming that he had found Japan in the Indies. But like it or not, he was the first European since the Vikings to cross the Western Hemisphere and launched a period of settlement and colonization. And for those accomplishments, that is why he's remembered. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Dividing the World. An important event occurred after Columbus's discovery, as Portugal and Spain were the dominant seafaring nations at the time, war could erupt over who controlled what. To avert a war, the Pope negotiated a settlement in 1494, which created the Line of Demarcation, which separated the globe into western and eastern halves. Spain got everything west of the line, and Portugal got everything to the east. This treaty created the Spanish hegemony in the New World for centuries. It also created the Portuguese control of the African slave trade. It also enabled the creation of vast Portuguese and later Dutch trade networks on the African and Asian coasts. The implication of this treaty cannot be understated. Why is it that Brazilians speak Portuguese and the rest of the region speaks Spanish? The Treaty of Tordesillas. Why is it that the Portuguese established the first real trading relationships with the Japanese and Chinese? The Treaty of Tordesillas. But questions remained. What about France and England? Where did they fit into this? More on that later. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Other Explorers. For several years, many believed Columbus had reached the East Indies, and a host of other explorers struck out in order to confirm if it was Asia 
or something else. But before we get into that, I want to describe for you how the Chinese were also part of the Age of Exploration before they turned inward. Zheng Wei, who lived from 1405 to 1433, was a Muslim and a Anuk. And for those of you who don't know, an Anuk is like Varus from Game of Thrones, basically a person who's been castrated. Zheng Wei led a total of seven Chinese expeditions, which had over 300 ships and 27,000 men, which was equal to half the size of London's population at the time. Despite this early and impressive success, the Ming Dynasty focused on a return to traditional Confucian values, after being under the rule of the Mongolian Yuan Dynasty for centuries. This desire to turn inward and return to tradition and reject exploration and engagement is why Europeans will have little competition exploring and expanding during the Age of Discovery. In 1497, Genoese sailor John Cabot discovered Newfoundland for England, but due to issues at home, the English won't take advantage of this discovery for half a century. In 1501, a Genoese sailor, funded by the Spanish and the Portuguese, called Amerigo Vespucci, explored the South American coast and declared it a new continent. In 1507, a mapmaker drew a map that showed the new lands and named them America in honor of Vespucci. Columbus had died in 1506, so he wasn't around to protest this mapmaker's decision. And that is why we call this America and not Colombia. Another explorer I want you to know is Magellan. In 1514, King Charles V of Spain approved Magellan's plan to sail around the tip of South America to the Indies. His goal was to prove that some spice islands lay on the Spanish side of the line of demarcation. Magellan took 240 men in five ships, and after reaching Brazil, he put down a mutiny and discovered the Strait of Magellan to reach the South Sea. Magellan thought he only had 2,000 miles to go in order to reach the Indies. But in fact, he had misjudged the size of the Pacific. He was really 10,000 miles away. It took him and his men 98 days to cross the Pacific, and only two deserted islands were ever seen before reaching the Philippines. Magellan converted a local chief to Christianity, but dies days later after leading a raid on a rival island's tribe. After that, the friendly chief turned on the Spaniards, and the Spanish fled in one remaining warship. Afterward, the crew pushed westward, completing the first circumnavigation of the globe. In 1522, the survivors made it home, with 18 of the original 240 men making the voyage. Lastly, Jacques Cartier sailed down the St. Lawrence River for France and would lead to the creation of French Canada. The point is that there are numerous other explorations that occurred for centuries after the Columbian discovery that had profound consequences on world history. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Columbian Exchange. Columbus's voyages initiated what scholars have labeled the Columbian Exchange. It was the transfer of diseases, goods, plants, crops, and animals between eastern and western hemispheres. This is the single greatest biological, social, and cultural exchange in human history. The transfer had both positive 
and negative elements. For example, an improved diet. The West gave the East maize, potatoes, and beans, and these crops would feed an exploding world population. The East gave the West livestock, like horses, cattle, and pigs, as well as rice and wheat. But there were negative elements as well, such as invasive species and plants which wrecked the natural environment. Meanwhile, diseases like mumps, measles, typhus, chickenpox, and perhaps most importantly, smallpox, devastated Native American populations. Though the natives did also give the European syphilis, so it wasn't all one-sided. The effect of these diseases is most evident on the island of Hispaniola, where Columbus landed. In 1492, the native population of the island was 300,000. By 1540, it was just 500. Some scholars estimate that 80 million people, one-fifth of all humankind, perished as a result of the Columbian Exchange. Now, the Columbian Exchange does not end with Columbus's voyages. It continues, but it is still the single greatest exchange in human history until aliens land on Earth, and that's when stuff's going to get real wild pretty quick. The point is the Western Hemisphere and the world will never be the same again after contact, and the vast death caused by the Columbian Exchange will make European conquest and colonization far easier. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all being safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.